0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Insider. I'm your host, Dr. Kenan Omertug. With me as always is my co-host, Corey French, fourth year medical student at Washington University. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Andrea Hageman. She's an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology in the Department of Gynecology Oncology, and is here to talk to us a bit about how she got to where she is and how reproductive health intersects. Please welcome Dr. Hageman. Good evening. So tell us the story of who you are and how you got to where you are. Like, when did you decide you wanted to be a doctor?
1: Um, pretty late, actually. I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, I had uh, parents who were really involved in the church, and I did a lot of service work with them. I think growing up, my dad was a pastor, my mom's a musician, an organist, and a pianist. And so, I thought, honestly, thought my job was either going to be a pianist. At one point, I wanted to be a concert pianist. That was my pretty much full time dream. And then um, I also thought. It seemed like everyone in my family was either a minister or a musician. So those were my choices. Um, At least they they seemed pretty cool too. I liked my family quite a bit. So um, I studied music and played the piano and was going to go to music school and then um, ended up not going to music school, ended up um, kind of surprisingly getting accepted into Princeton and my piano teacher was the one who said, I think you should do this instead of going to music school. And so did you
0: did you plan on going to like, did you apply to Princeton with a plan to do music school there? Or how did Princeton come out like out of the woodwork?
1: Uh, I think it was just more so from the Midwest. Um, I really my dream was to go to Chicago and be in the big city. And um, I was pretty much on track for that. then we took a little summer vacation out East and stopped at a bunch of schools. And um, Mm. just seeing the campus, it was beautiful. And I don't know, I just thought, sure, I'll put my name into a couple Ivy League schools. And
0: bam, Princeton.
1: Oh, maybe I can go out of Wisconsin (laughs) or um, do something a little different. And my piano teacher was pretty encouraging of that. And um, I don't know, it actually happened that, On the East Coast, everyone who was interested in music had been going about it in a little bit more competitive way than maybe I had.
2: (laughs) (laughs) As is the case.
1: (laughs) And uh and I just got sick of sitting in the practice room all the time and just couldn't really see. At the same time, I was enjoying my science classes and you know, maybe wanting to just be with people more. And so the idea of doing pre-med seemed like a little more stable career approach at the time than music and um, just kept kind of following that course a little bit more.
0: How did you decide to go into, so you got, so you decide I want to do pre-med and then, I mean, at what point did you decide to be an OBGYN?
1: Um, you know, looking back, I so I was a molecular biology major, and when my thesis advisor was actually really into um, genetics, and um, Dolly the sheep had just been mm. cloned. Um, <laughs> the time was uh, 1998, and this was very exciting. And actually, as a college student, I went to give um, I, I went to do teaching sessions with um, neighborhood preschools and not preschools maybe like elementary schools I don't know I don't remember the age group but we like made big things of sheep and what does cloning mean and is this scary or really cool. And so I was very interested in reproductive health at that point just thinking about the ethics behind it. And so that sort of got the wheels turning but I definitely thought I was going to be a pediatrician. <laughs> so um And again, I came from a smaller town in Wisconsin where I knew pediatricians. I had gone to them (laughs) as a kid and I knew dentists and, um, I, nobody in my family was a doctor. So I guess I had just seen pediatricians, right? So that's what I figured I would be and maybe go back to Wisconsin and be a pediatrician. Um, but then coming to medical school, and I actually that's what drew me to Washu. I loved children's hospital. <laughs> um, <laughs> that cafeteria with the balloons and everything at the time. It was so cool. Um and um I don't know. So I just figured this would be a great place to be a pediatrician and and came here to learn how to be. Um yeah, and so yeah, I did not at all think about OBGYN, <laughs> honestly, until third year rotation. So even during second year clerkship or second year course, um, I thought the most interesting thing that I remember from that two things, one was Dr. Nelson coming and showing the placenta and us actually like coming up and seeing it. I thought that's crazy. I'm getting (laughs) out of here. (laughs) And then, um, the other thing I remember was Dr. Tom Herzog, who was one of the GYN oncologists, coming like late to lecture because he was just coming out of the OR. And I thought, who, what kind of specialty, you know, doesn't take the second year clerkship of med school so seriously that they're not in time for their lecture?
0: <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah.
1: my thoughts. Like, what specialty is this, GYN oncology? Um, <laughs> that's what I remember from second year.
0: So, what what was it about? I, I know you, I mean, at one point you had even had a pretty strong path towards going into re- reproductive endocrine and infertility. What was it that attracted you to GYN oncology? Was it those memories of Dr. Herzog being late, <laughs> <laughs> Or was it uh, something else?
1: Well, I think so, yeah, I, I really was interested in maybe from the college days, Dolly the Sheep, um reproductive ethics. I thought that was fascinating. Um And and then the idea of the whole endocrine system, you know, and how you can help someone who so wants to have a baby make that happen. Um, I really was fascinated by that. And and that was what I went into, certainly went into residency thinking, okay, I'm gonna do specifically reproductive endocrine and infertility. I have very clear ideas all the way through, you can see <laughs> that didn't <laughs> pan out at all. Um, yeah, and then I think um, intern year, we are um, in our residency. We spend a lot of time on the floor on the oncology service um, at night as the mouse. We still call it the mouse rotation. And then also um, uh, an intern um, year, onc rotation is heavily floor-based. At the time, we also covered chemotherapy reactions if they were happening because chemotherapy was administered right down the hall from where our inpatient service was and also, as an intern, we got to at that point be involved in some of the radiation procedures that were going on. It just, everything mm-hmm. has changed quite a bit since that time, but um, it was so wide, such a wide variety of things, um, but all was very fascinating. Like these big surgeries would come back up, and we do these post-op checks, and I couldn't imagine what had just happened in the operating room with these huge incisions and how complicated the patients were, and. I'd run down the hall and manage a tax all reaction and then, um, you know, kind of sit with someone as they were thinking about end of life care. And it just kind of struck me with, um, honestly thinking back, you know, over the first couple of years of residency, i thought back a lot to what my dad did in his job as a minister, which was to sit with people and comfort them in times of really hard stuff, um, and it was okay, whatever the outcome was, as a pastor, it was like, you're there to kind of support it, not necessarily to fix it. Um, and right. so I, I saw that in the oncologists with what they were doing every day on the floor in those you know, really big situations. And I thought that had always kind of appealed to me, making the most out of tough times in life, um, not just the good times in life. And so something about that, I think it's related to why I ended up choosing oncology.
2: We talked a lot about what brought you to where you are now and your, your path to becoming faculty here. And I just wanted to talk to you a little bit now about what a typical day looks like for you, what, what a day in the life of a gynecologic oncologist is like.
1: Yeah, well, um, so biggest things that I do are clinic and OR. Uh, so my week can be pretty well divided between my days that I'm in clinic and the days I'm in the operating room um, today. For instance, Thursday is my clinic day at the CAM. So I went to clinic at 730, um, saw patients who were getting chemotherapy uh, for their known cancers, established cancers, either first line c- chemotherapy or recurrent um, I saw patients in follow-up to make sure that their cancer wasn't coming back um, and make sure that they're living a healthy, thriving survivorship after their cancer diagnosis. I saw new patients who might have cancer and were worried um, at nexal masses or um, pre-cancers of the cervix that they're no, not, their generalist wasn't sure what step to take next, um, and then um, you know, answered some phone calls from patients um, throughout the day and looked at lab results and called back some pathology results. Um, and uh, that was a pretty full day in clinic that I actually did a Zoom call with someone in the Dominican Republic at the end of the day. Um, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was my first mm-hmm. international Zoom. Um, and then so that was, I think clinic days are really fun, but kind of exhausting. The operating room is um, just a whole different world because they're so in our clinic, like today I had a medical student with me in the morning um, and I work with nurse practitioners sometimes um, who help me see the patients. or, um, and then, but I don't have a resident or fellow on my cam day. Sometimes at MOBAP I will have a resident and fellow with me, which I really enjoy. Um, and and just kind of, you know, saying why I'm giving this type of chemo or what study we're using to kind of justify our management plan, um, that's that's really fun. But what I it, it was gonna say is like the OR days are, you kind of get all the learners all together at once, right? The med student, the mm-hmm. resident, the fellow, um, maybe an RNFA who's there, um, and I love those days because it's kind of a um, a challenge to just make sure that everyone who's in the OR is getting the appropriate thing out of the case for their level of experience. And um, the ORDs are, are fun because you can put out the music during that case. <laughs> right. and if you've already made the decision of what to do, that's almost sometimes the harder part than doing the surgery. Um, now you're here to just go and do your craft. And I think that what I love about the OR is making sense out of something that's become really abnormal like the pelvic anatomy which is so skewed in a gyn cancer mm-hmm. uh, you know making sense out of that i i really was drawn to it and i think back to my like years of playing the piano i really like working through complicated technical things right and mm-hmm. and that sort of came out more on the third year rotation when i saw that in the operating room like, really, it was kind of, that was the challenge, right? Making sense out of something that didn't make any sense at all. And had made this body so um, abnormal because of the disease. And I think it's that puzzle that still really mm-hmm. motivates me today.
2: So sort of like taking those notes on a page as the knowledge of your, your surgical knowledge and transforming that into a cohesive plan.
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: What kind of music do you
0: listen to in the OR?
1: Oh, <laughs>
0: as, a, as a pianist and, you know, musician, what, what kind of music gets you going? It helps you kind of get that rhythm.
1: <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I would love to say it's just always Bach all the time. Um, but to me for <laughs> the other day, we put on Britney Spears radio or, um, I really do kind of like more a top 40 pop fitness, um,
2: I have to say that I was in the OR with you on that Britney Spears day, and it made made my day.
1: (laughs) That was actually your idea, Corey.
2: Yeah, yeah, might have been. (laughs) Well,
1: you got to read the room.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, Britney got the uterus out. It was a, it was a good day. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, it sounds like you do sort of a whole gamut. You you do a lot of clinical medicine and chemotherapy management, and then you also do a lot of surgical management.
1: Yes. Um, and I think then the, the, that's really kind of bread and butter G1 oncology, right? Managing the different GYN cancers, you know, primarily endometrial, ovarian, vulvar, vaginal, cervical, um, figuring out what, um, what the best management plan is. It doesn't always involve surgery, even though we're surgeons. I think what I love about this field is that we really have a better understanding of when, which one is appropriate, right? Sometimes it's really one of the only specialties where you get to do both and you have a better understanding of both. So um, like knowing when someone is a good operative candidate or not, I think is a skill that a surgeon has. And sometimes an on- like a medical oncologist will send us patients to say, is this patient a good surgery candidate or not? And from the oncology side of it, it'd be great to get it out. But from a surgeon side of it, there's a whole bunch of comorbidities that you have to consider and whether it's appropriate or not. And, um, I just feel in some sense, um, you know, all of the specialties within ob 2 an offer this very sort of intimate relationship with your patient just by nature of the field. But then when we get to know them both surgically and medically for the long haul, it's very special. I feel like you just know someone so well having operated on them and getting to take care of them for the long haul.
2: Yeah. I think that is, I mean, it's a very interesting relationship that you build and um, do you, and then I know you talked a lot about, you know, from your past with your father and working with people through difficult times. Do you do that a lot as well now?
1: Oh, yes. I think, (laughs) um, you know, probably the easiest thing for us to do as oncologists is to sign chemo orders and to just say, here's the next step to try to fix this problem. But one of the harder things to do is to recognize when that's not helping and to really have a discussion of what the goals of care ultimately are. Like, how do you want, if this cancer is going to take your life, how do you want to spend it? How do you want to make the most of what you have left? Being honest with people about what you know to be true to the best of your knowledge. We never know 100%. We never can really write the story completely or, or predict the future, but we also have a lot of experience in pushing too far and pushing people over the edge where they suffer at the end of the end of their life. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's a part of the art of oncology that, you know, it's just so important to keep working on.
0: At, at what point in your career, did you feel like you started having the confidence to have those conversations with people?
1: You know, honestly, it's such a humbling thing because I, and I think this happens to a lot of people who train at, at you know great institutions and have great medical training. You, that's kind of a thing that you come into it having maybe a natural skill at. Mm-hmm. What I have noticed is that I will wax and wane, I'll ebb and flow and sort of my Confidence about that. Like, as I mo- know more of the evidence behind um, what we're doing and you know more of the literature, and also see the people at meetings who are really pushing the limits of what the therapy can do, um, I start to question, like, well, maybe I shouldn't give up on this person either because there are these trials and there are right. these excellent things. And so, honestly, I felt more confident about that. <laughs> probably as a resident, you know, I might have very um you know, sort of overconfidently looked at someone that, you know, might have been pushing their patient towards more chemo and thought I would never do that, you know, and I think we we all have felt that way, maybe like watching someone else's care or you see a patient in the hospital and you think, how could they keep wanting to go? Like they're just so like from afar, it doesn't look like you would ever want to keep pushing the limit. Um, But I think what's really hard is that you get to know this patient, you follow them along. They've always done so well. And when they start not doing well, sometimes as the oncologist, you don't see it either (laughs) because you're so used to seeing them how they were originally. So Mm -hmm. to be honest, I think that confidence has, I, I don't know if its that's the right word. It's more of a, um, it's just tough, you know, with life and, and you're, you're in it with the, your patient. So I think it just, the longer you know someone, the harder it becomes to really let go when you have to really take yourself out of it personally and put on that objective doctor hat, which I sometimes blur the line a little bit.
0: Okay, Andrea, what right now is your biggest passion? Like you do, you you, you you kind of describe what a typical day is—it's clinic, it's OR—but you do so many different places, so many other things. What of the what is your passion right now?
1: Well, my overall career goal is to help people um, prevent gynecologic cancer. Actually, it turns out that I'm sick of treating it. I would rather prevent it. I hate having those end of life discussions about cancer, um, and I would. Really like to see cancer prevention through weight management and appropriate genetic testing. So, my kind of research and career goal passions are bringing awareness to the fact that there's a lot we can do to prevent gynecologic cancers. I think we talk about it way too late. I should not be the one telling them when they hit my office with a new diagnosis. Um, hopefully, they'll remember from their second year medical school clerkship or, um, you know, somewhere in. Their community um, of what brings risk to gynecologic cancer. OBC is such a huge problem in our society, and it really wreaks havoc on the way we're able to have fun in the OR, um, as well as you know, <laughs> get get people through surgery safely and easily, and um, you know, have healthy outcomes. So, weight management, working with our other colleagues. To understand that endometrial cancer is hugely related to weight, and try to prevent that is a big passion of mine.
2: So, what are you? What have you been looking at, doing in order to to try and raise that awareness, and in, in order to try and uh, sort of work in that preventative space?
1: Well, I really think that coming back to my uh, previous interest in reproductive endocrine, like this is kind of where the population is the you know, patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome are high risk for endometrial cancer. They're often struggling with fertility. And in fact, sometimes they hit my office before they hit Dr. Omerthag's office, which is sort of the reverse of what you think in the life cycle of a woman. Yeah. Uh, but that's unfortunately much more common these days. We're seeing complex atypical hyperplasia, grade one endometrial cancer in many women who want to preserve their uterus for fertility so hysterectomy doesn't make sense for them if they want to have a baby and in fact it's actually very not simple but if we could get weight loss to be easier they could reverse their hyperplasia and actually have healthy pregnancies so I think we need to work together as a specialty which we we are doing but we've become very specialized, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm in my oncology world and Dr. Overtag's in his REI world. And if we don't meet and talk about these patients that we're actually overlapping on taking care of and come up with a cohesive plan for them, it's not going to work. So one of my hopes is that as a specialty, we actually draw on the fact that we're all similarly trained in reproductive health to make sure that we bring cancer awareness up earlier in people's life cycles.
2: And I think actually we've just wandered into what I was going to ask you next, which was how you encountered reproductive health in your practice. And it sounds like you have a lot of patients that come in with large endometrial risk factors, which ultimately comes into reproductive health as well through PCOS. And what about patients that are desiring fertility preservation?
1: Mm Um. Yeah. So that it's it's tough in the gynecologic cancer sphere, right? Um, endometrial cancer is one thing because hormonally, we can probably reverse that. Um, and with weight loss, as well as um, control of diabetes, actually hyperplasia and endometrial cancer can reverse. But invasive ovarian cancer, is not really reversible. Um, that's not mm-hmm. so hormonally driven. And of course, <laughs> an ovary that's cancerous is not the same as, you know, that's the part of the body that we need to stimulate to get the eggs to have fertility preservation. So it's unfortunately one of the areas where we can't necessarily safely do ovarian preservation or egg retrieval when someone already has a rapidly growing tumor of their ovary. The good news there though, I think is that, that's where genetic testing comes in. So I see a lot of patients who have mutations, for instance, um, germline mutations and BRCA one or two other mutations within that category. If we know that early enough, we can set people on a path. So I see a lot of women in terms of counseling for that planning, like planning for when you're going to safely have pregnancy how do hormonal changes of pregnancy affect your risk of getting breast cancer? Um, when, you know, what is the benefit, cancer benefit in fact of or cancer risk reduction benefit of being on oral contraception for ovarian cancer? How do we plan all of those things so that the end result is you get the babies you want, but you also um, don't get cancer. And okay. because as we all know, like when someone already has, a breast cancer is hard to plan a pregnancy and know what that hormone stimulation is going to do for the breast cancer. So um, if we know that the patient is at increased risk and we know early enough before the cancer is diagnosed, then we can really, I think, plan appropriately. And that's very, I think, hopefully empowering to patients.
0: What do you wish you learned from your OBGYN rotations? In medical school? I mean, I, I mean, you've obviously learned a lot, but what, what is one thing you look back and you're like, Oh, wish I would have learned more about that in OBGYN as a medical student.
1: Well, if I remember my sort of worldview at the time, I, you know, I would hope to hope that it is broader now than it was when I was a second year med student, not to say that anyone's worldview is is not big right now as a second year, but I just think my experience wasn't what it is today, right? And so if I look back, I definitely thought I was taking a class and learning the nitty gritty details of, you know, the endometrium changing and the different phases of the menstrual cycle, and um, what what I think today is how much it applies to every single person in our family, um, person in our community, um, kind of the way the world goes around is is actually, I feel you know, all about women's health. (laughs) Um, If we can take care of our women and make them empowered and able to, you know, do what's right for their own bodies, I think the world would be a better place. Um, To maybe make that a little more succinct, I think the importance of OBGYN's involvement in the community, raising awareness about what we know about women's health. In my world, I think... Just getting the message out there that obesity affects women's health so much um, is a huge thing to me. I didn't really think of people outside the hospital when I was a medical student too much. I didn't think about how much women's health um, in the community was so important. If I didn't go into OBGYN. Um, you know, I don't know if I would have learned that. So I think that's what I'm trying to say is that. What you're learning now is so applicable to almost every aspect of, of you know, what is happening in the community. So just to pay attention to that and sort of connect the dots a little bit more.
0: And that's, and that's kind of where, that's actually a great point as to kind of what the genesis of this kind of season, if you will, was to ask this question to non-OBGYNs because whether you go into derm, ortho, radiology, you're always going to have to deal with something related to
1: women's health. Like you're always going to know someone who's pregnant and has a question right. about that. Right. Um, you know what you're not going to do if you go into ob Deliver a freaking baby on an airplane. That's never going to happen to you. <laughs> uh, when you go into something totally else, you will do that. That will happen That's to right. you. <laughs> and That's you will right. wish that you knew how to clamp that placenta or carry a clamp in your pocket like I do, but never <laughs> use. So, <laughs> do you really? Well. You know who does? Gladys Say, who was my, you know, what a, you know Dr. Gladys Say, who was one of my huge mentors and um, chief residents when I was an intern. She had like always a supply box in her car, like just in case something would happen, some obstetric emergency would come up. Um, you know, I, and so I, for I, a little bit of time, I did. And then I stopped doing that.
0: <laughs> so if you were on an airplane and you delivered a baby, what would you use to clamp the cord? Have you done this exercise before? In your head, what would you find? What what would you call for? What would you ask? I mean, I think the airplanes have tips for this kind of stuff now. But.
1: Yeah, I think they do. I think that's what I just like. <laughs> I go down this path. I'm like, oh, they'll be ready.
0: <laughs> could you use a could you use like a beret, like a hair? Yeah. Um, you
1: could. You could actually use that.
2: probably like use a hair tie if that's
1: all you have.
2: Yeah, I mm. use a hair tie. Mm. Hair tie, a shoelace would work pretty well too. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't want to tie it too tight your <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that this is something I needed to be thinking about. So. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, your if you're going day, into OB two, and Corey, don't worry, it won't happen to you. Don't. Yeah, worry.
2: right. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I, I do have a final question for you. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the importance of women's health in general, um, but one of the last things I wanted to ask, just to round out our conversation, is. What you think is our biggest priority in reproductive health and women's health as we go into 2021?
1: I, you know, I, I still I feel very strongly that a woman's right to choose what she wants for her own body is so important, and we see that in all aspects of their care. Um, in women that I talk to today in my clinic, you know, choosing when they're done with chemo, when they've had enough, when they want. When they're ready to stop, even though you know their husband's sitting right by them or their family members say, "But mom, you've always pushed so hard. why don't you keep going and and they can actually make that decision with their family member of when when to stop or um whether to do a surgery or not um these These questions are scary um I think we when we think about a woman's right to choose we think about it only in you know terms of abortion care. it gets very sort of over that statement is is more, um, you know, becomes politicized very quickly. And I think that really in all aspects of how I take care of women, which really has almost nothing to do with abortion, um, it's the same questions all the time. It's empowerment of choices. And so in that broad aspect, I hope that continues to be part of the discussion. I just hope we can broaden the view that what we're getting from the media to shape that discussion of women's health. And, and maybe by doing that, kind of bringing that into context more, we can make some movement and and not hit a wall when we have that discussion.
0: Everyone, that's Dr. Hageman. Thanks for taking the time. As always, thanks to my co-host, Corey French, who handles everything behind the scenes. We'll see you on the next episode with Dr. Mati Hlashwayo. She'll be talking about a lot of cool stuff regarding infectious disease, so you'll want to definitely tune in for that.